All right, this new way of uh, us doing the order of service means that sometimes I am not all prepared when I get up here. Hey, you guys. How are y'all doing? Kind of good? <laughs> Real good? Really good down here. Good to see y'all. If I haven't met you before, my name's Josh. I'm one of the pastors here along with Brian Laws, who you've met earlier. And welcome to church this evening. Our text, as you can see up here, Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, or titling it Law School Tonight. Uh, I think you'll see it talks often about the law. And I believe it's time just to jump right in. So I'm going to ask, I know you were just standing, but if you're able, if you would, stand with me once more. It's one of the ways that we here at church can show that we're honoring God's word as more than just the written words of men but the very God-breathed, spoken word of God. If you would, follow along with me as I read this out loud for us. God's word says this. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, we ask it tonight in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. You guys can be seated, and I promise it's for good this time, or at least for the next few minutes. So as we start off here, I wanted to share with you um, a story that came up from my past this week. This was maybe five, six years ago, 2015 maybe? No, how long ago was that? Seven years. Whew. Man, time flies when you're having fun. Seven years ago, I'm out to dinner with a group of friends, and they, they had somebody that was, that was visiting them from out of town. And so this was a new person to me, and I got to talking to that person over dinner and just sharing a bit about my life. And... At one point in the conversation, she stops me and says, hey, can I give you some relationship advice? <laughs> okay. I uh, never say no to that. And I was, uh, I was expecting advice that I've gotten before. You know, that's good and it's sweet, but it's just kind of trite and hallmarky. You know, marry your best friend or you know, find the one that completes you. It's like, oh, yeah, whatever, whatever. That is not what she said. Here's how she began. She said, imagine yourself in a fiery car accident where you're horribly disfigured and you lose all your limbs. <laughs> what kind of relationship advice is this? Whoa, 
I was not expecting a morbid example like that. And if, if you're thinking that's a bit over the top and uh, much for a relationship advice moment, I was right there with you. I was really, really uncomfortable as she began to speak about this. And I remember even calling somebody on the way home and being like, you'll never believe what this woman just said to me. So this morbid, awful, yucky example, it made me feel really weird. But over the years, you know what I've realized? It's probably some of the best relationship advice I've ever received. Now, I know you're going to want to know what the advice was now, but you're going to have to come talk to me after the sermon if you want to know the specifics. Because my purpose in sharing this is not so much to get into the nitty-gritty details of what exactly she said, but to let you know that sometimes it's the morbid, horrifying example that makes us feel so uncomfortable which is also the one that most powerfully drives home the point, better than a sweet cliche ever could. And I bring that up because this is what we see a bit in this text that we're reading tonight. Paul is sort of going through describing our lives in Christ as people that are united to him. And as he gets to the place where he's describing this new relationship we have with the law, he says, it's kind of like this. He says, hey, can, I, can I give you an example and we're like, yeah, sure. We're expecting a, a sweet cliche. He says, it, it's kind of like you're married to your soulmate and then they die and your marriage is dissolved. I don't want to think about that, Paul. That's kind of morbid. He's like, oh, okay, 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 we won't go that far. How about, it's like this. It, you're married to your soulmate and you're both still alive, okay. But she cheats on you, and she goes and lives with somebody else. I don't want to think about that either. These are horrible <laughs> examples. Or at least ones that really make me feel uncomfortable. Yet they're the examples that Paul chooses to use when he's describing this new posture we have, specifically towards the law and the role of the law in a believer's life. And what I'm going to propose to you tonight is like the big takeaway from this section of scripture. The thing that we're going to hone in on the most is this. That in Christ, as one that's united to Christ, I have a new relationship with the law of God. It operates in my life in a totally different way than it did before. And if it takes using a morbid, yucky example for me to see that, and for me to understand the full weight and ramifications of that, then so be it. I'm willing to sit in that example to see what God has for me in it. So, like you see up here on the screen, in Christ, we have this new posture towards the law. And I've got those numbers there because just to give you a little bit of a roadmap, we're going to hit three different things as we sort of unpack this. One, we need to define what the law is. And I know some of y'all are rolling your eyes. You're like, Josh, we've talked about that a lot in Romans so far. Yeah, we have. I know. But I also can't assume that everybody's been here for some of those sermons through Romans where we've talked about the law. And I also can't assume that you remember it even if you were here. Or if you were paying attention. I can't assume any of those things. So we're going to need to revisit it tonight to make sure we're on the page, excuse me, on the same page about what it is 
that Romans means when it says you're free from uh, the law. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, what we're going to look at, right in the middle, uh, you can go to the next point. Why is our posture changed? What is it that's happened that's made it so that we have this new relationship to whatever the law is? And finally, the last thing that we're going to do today is we're going to ask the question, so what? How, why does this matter? How does it affect my life? Does it change anything really? I think it does. But we'll have to wait till the very end to get to that point. So let's start with what is the law? Uh, like I said, this is the part that some of you guys are going to be very familiar with, but it'd be worth revisiting even if you are. The law just sort of crash course. When we speak about that biblically, we're not talking about the speed limit out here on Hooker Oak. We're not talking about like city ordinances against jaywalking or something like that. No, that's not the law we're discussing. We're talking about the law of Israel. And in particular, this code of conduct that God gives his people. Sometimes it's moral, has a moral dimension, like the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery, and on and on and on. Sometimes it has more of a sort of ceremonial uh, sort of function to it, like laws towards defining how we're to offer sacrifices to God. Or laws about washing and regulations that the Old Testament Israelites would go through. Sometimes these laws sort of kind of had a both and. There was a moral element and a ceremonial element. All of that to say is that when an Israelite was thinking about the law of God, what, if they were thinking about it properly, what they understood it to mean was this. That the law was a God-given instrument for them to know who God was, his character, and for them to know what it meant to live as fully human and fully in keeping with the way that he made us. The law also had the function of setting them apart for all the nations of the earth to sort of, for, they, for them to stick out of all the peoples of the earth. And so in so doing, they would show people who the true God was. So I, I want to pause right there, and maybe this is the element that's going to kind of be new, if you're familiar with all this, and that is I'm just going to really hone in on this one element here, and that is this. The law of God is good. I'm not sure if I've just straight up said that in a sermon in Romans yet so far, but let me say it again. The law of God is good. It is given by God. It is a reflection of his character and his goodness. It is something that if we keep it, we are living fully free as human beings. That is a good thing. And even the reason that I threw in verse 7 into our text today, that little tidbit of verse 7, got it up here on the screen, the underlined part at the very end, Romans 7 has its own way of saying this. It says, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. This is saying, the law isn't evil. It's not bad. It's not inherently sinful or wrong. It is good, God-given, beautiful. Where we go wrong with the law is not a problem with it in itself. Where we go wrong with it 
is when we misuse it and turn it into something that it was never intended for or intended to be. For instance, when I bring my sin and my brokenness and all my baggage to the law of God, what it actually transforms and becomes is something that stirs up even more sin into my heart. One of the ways this happens is by taking sort of this vague understanding of wrongdoing and actually defining it and saying, no, this is idolatry. No, this is covetousness. This is what this is and how it's rebellion against God. And this thing that was sort of vague and amorphous in my life and in my mind now has a very clear definition of how it's sinful and wrong. Or how about this? This will be elaborated more deeper into the chapter. But sometimes this simple being forbidden from doing something makes you want to do it even more. Right? So if I say... Hey, don't you dare go through this door right over here. What's the first thing you want to do? Yeah, Richard's about to get up off of his pew. <laughs> I'm doing it. And it's more nuanced than that. It's, it, but, but there is this real kind of sense in which sometimes the prohibition against something can stir up our sinful hearts to make, it want it, to make us want it even more. The law of God is good. And yet with the baggage that we bring to it, we can twist it and distort it into something that is just a, a mockery of what it was intended for. And maybe the most clear example of this is what happens when we quote unquote keep the law. Oh boy, that's when it gets bad. So... The law says to honor my father and mother, and I'm doing that, and I'm living in the freedom of that. I'm getting the joy of obedience to what God has said, but very quickly, that joy turns into something else. It turns into pride. I do this better than they do. It turns into self-righteousness. Oh, my. I've followed quite a few laws. Maybe if I'll do even more, God will owe me. And he'll have to reward me for my obedience. It turns into manipulation. Using law keeping to somehow make it so that God is in my debt. That ain't what the law was intended for. And yet that's how my sin can take this good God-given thing and twist it and distort it. And turn it into something that actually traps me and condemns me as opposed to doing what it was initially intended for. So, when the Apostle Paul refers to the law in this section of Scripture, or all throughout Romans, that's what he's speaking about. Let's go back to the analogy, though, that morbid, uncomfortable analogy. And this will help us sort of get at that second piece, and that is, okay, now we know what the law is, how is it that my posture has changed toward it? What happened? Well, it has to do with that weird analogy. Let, let me read it for you again. It's just a couple of verses. It starts in verse 2. It says this, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, 
she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So might be a little bit easier to put this in kind of a familiar context. So I'm going to use myself as the guinea pig here. Let's imagine, crazy thought, but let's imagine I get married one day. All right? So I will be bound in marriage to that poor, poor soul. And we will be bound together not just by our love towards one another. Hopefully that will be there. We'll be bound together, not just our love towards one another, our commitment towards one another, but we'll actually be bound together by the law of marriage. God's rule for what we owe each other as a covenantly married couple. And if she goes and and lives with another guy, or if I go and live with another lady, we will be fundamentally breaking that law of marriage that binds us to one another. That law is binding on us always, always, unless, what? One of us dies. We say it in the vows, right? The traditional vows that are often said at a wedding, till death do us part. And so if I died in that fiery car crash that at the beginning of the sermon I told you somebody asked me to imagine... If I were to die, she would be, that is my wife, would would no longer be bound by that law of marriage to me. She'd be released from it. And I hope she'd be sad for a little bit, at least. But I also hope that she would realize that she's also now free. And if the Lord brought somebody else into her life, she would be free to marry them and to be with them just as she was free to do so with me. Before I died. I know, it's morbid. That's why I started with this. It's an intense analogy. And yet, it's so crucial. Because it's the perfect way of describing this new scenario that we're in when it comes to relating to God's law. Remember, we've been talking about dying with Christ for weeks now. As we've seen that language all throughout Romans. Romans 5, Romans 6, now into Romans 7, has told us that if we're united in Christ, if we're in Christ, we share everything with him, even his death. We share with him in death. And what we've talked about that to mean is it means that we no longer have that old relationship with sin where it dominated us, where it controlled us, where it compelled us. We died with Christ. And so that old master-servant relationship with sin, it's done. Hallelujah. But what this is adding is, hey, not only is it that old relationship with sin that you're dead to, the law that bound you to it, like to a married couple, that's over too. And if you've died in Christ, that old, twisted, distorted version of the law that messed you up so bad, that stirred up self-righteousness and pride and fear and made you want to sin even more, all of that is over. That law, you were not bound to. I think I have up here on the screen 
kind of the snippets of the verses that say this the most clearly. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to him. And verse 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. You ain't under the law anymore. It has no control over your life and the way it used to. You are free. You are under grace. Now, if you're anything like me, you're saying, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> but what does that mean practically? Our last point. So what? Seriously, so what? We go out of here and say, okay, I'm free from the law, but it doesn't really affect much of how I think or live. It actually does. It has a huge effect. The effect that I'm going to focus on most tonight and what I want you to see is that now that we are released from this twisted, distorted law, we have a new motivation for obedience. A new thing that propels us to honor God in our lives. And as a matter of fact, it's the only thing that can propel us to honor God in our lives. Here's what I mean. If you go up to the next slide, this is actually, just a second ago I had these verses up, but you noticed I cut them off short. I just did the little dot, dot, dot. Here's the continuation. After we're told that we died to the law in verse 4 so that we might belong to another, then it continues, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Verse 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What this is telling you is that your release from the law actually enables you to honor God authentically and purely in a way that the law could never get you to do. Or at least not the distorted version of it that our sin made it out to be. And counterintuitively, it really is topsy-turvy. Paul is teaching here, he's saying, hey, if we're serious about obeying God, then I'm going to have to preach very boldly that you are free from the law in order to allow you to honor God in your life. And it's crazy for me to think that he goes that way because I know for us preachers, we come to a passage like this and it scares us to death. Because in the Bible, it's saying so specifically, you're free from the law, you're released from the law. And it scares me because I'm like, if I tell my people that, they're just going to go out and live it up. Do whatever they want. Sin all they want. And they're not going to feel bad about it because they'll be like, I'm not under the law anymore. Paul isn't scared of that. In fact, he says, no, if I'm really serious about the people in my care being obedient to God, then I need to preach till I am blue in the face that they are free from the law because that is the only way that they get there. Let me give an example of how this might work. I want you to imagine a situation, uh, sorry, I know this is going to be vague, but let's imagine a situation where you do something just embarrassing, just mortifying. 
And somebody sees you doing that and confronts you on it and asks you about it. Now, this embarrassing thing that you're doing, it's not sinful, it's not immoral, it's not wrong. It's just embarrassing. And somebody saw you doing it. Like, I accidentally left my curtains open and somebody saw me doing my exercise routine at nighttime. Now they're asking me about it. Totally hypothetical. That's not real. My knee-jerk instinct is to lie, to make up some sort of story or an excuse to save face, to, to make them think well of me, to make them not think that, oh, my gosh, Josh is he's sort of a nut. But, but right before I tell that lie to save face, something stops me, and I don't. I don't lie. I tell the truth instead, and I just sort of own it. Yeah, I did something embarrassing. Now, that could be the end of the story. We could say, hooray, we did it. We didn't tell a lie. We told the truth. Yes, hooray. But I think the deeper story there is not so much what you did, but why you did it. Why did you stop yourself from telling a lie there? Why did I stop myself and tell the truth instead? I've got a few options for us that, let's just play this out. So up here on the screen, option A, maybe the reason I didn't lie is because I said, oh no, God's law says not to lie. And if I do something that God's law says not to, th then he'll be angry at me. Then he'll punish me. And I don't want that. In this scenario, my motivation is fear. And I'm using the law as a tool of, of compelling good behavior because I'm afraid. Option B, maybe this is what I thought. I, I stopped myself from lying because I said, oh, you know what? God's law says not to lie. And if I keep God's law, then maybe, just maybe, he'll owe me. Maybe he'll be forced to bless me. To give me a reward because I'll be able to say, look at all that I've done for you. And he'll have no other choice but to give me what I want. In that case, the motivation is self-righteousness. It's manipulation. And I'm using the law as a tool of manipulating God to get what I want. Option C. It's the last one I'll do even though we could go on all day. How about this? The law of God says not to lie. And you know what? Not a lot of people follow the law of God. And if I am true to it, if I tell the truth instead of lying, that'll make me part of the 5% of the population that is a good person. And I'll be better than my neighbors. They're terrible at lying. And I'll be better than my sister or my brother-in-law. They tell lies all the time. I'll be puffed up and able to look down on others. In this case, the motivation for not telling the lie is pride. And I'm using the law as a tool to lift myself up over others and look down on them. So whether it be fear, self-righteousness, pride, or the many other things that we could have put in the gaps here, what I want you to see is that all of these things, in a sense, are going back to the law to be our motivation for obedience. 
And, and, and I know that we, we very seldomly like actually have the inner monologue where we're thinking, just like I said out loud. But these things are the currents in our heart that sometimes are going on when we're making the decision to resist temptation or to give in to it. And all of them are going back to the law to motivate me to be obedient. That is exactly the thing that Romans 7 is saying you are free from. That's what you're released from. That's what you're liberated from. This. It has no more place in your life. It doesn't control you like it used to. And your motive for obedience is not that old broken law. Your motive for obedience now is the grace of Jesus Christ. And the fact that you are in him. You've died to this. And you've shared in his resurrection to new life following, as our text put it, in the way of the Spirit. So I don't have option D up on the screen. I didn't make an option D, but I'm going to tell you it. It's the gospel option. And it goes a little something like this. Man, I really want to tell a lie, Lord. I want to make up a story that will explain away the person that saw me exercising through the window. I want to save face. I want them to think well of me. Wait a second. The gospel tells me that Jesus thinks well of me. The gospel tells me that Jesus shed his blood and died on a cross so that he could call me by name and make me his. I don't have to have Joy's approval or tell a lie to win her approval. I have the approval of heaven. Of God the Father, God the Son, the God the Holy Spirit saying, Josh Lee, you are mine, my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. If I've got that, I don't need to break God's law to win the approval of others. And now I'm beginning to understand. I, I haven't thrown God's law out the window. Remember, what we're freed from here is that twisted, deformed version of it. God's law is still good. It tells me that telling the truth is what honors God. But what God's law doesn't do, it can't do, is motivate me to obedience. Only the grace of Jesus can. And even though the law shows me what's right, it's the grace of Christ and living out of that that propels me to do it. That's what it means to be free of the law and to be liberated from the newness of Christ and following his spirit. That's why it matters. Or to put it in terms of the sermon point, that's the so what. The most famous parable of Jesus is the, probably the parable of the prodigal son. I think I have a picture up that I found um, the prodigal son, we know it, we call it that because the younger son who squandered his inheritance, he's been off worldly living, he comes home thinking that he's just going to be a hired servant, and instead his father runs down the road to meet him and say, welcome home. It's a beautiful picture. But some pastors in recent years, and I think rightly so, have said we probably should rename this parable to know it as the parable of the two sons. Because this young man that's met on the road, he has an older brother. 
the older son, and he's the one that Jesus focuses on at the very end of the parable. He was the good kid. He obeyed the rules. He stayed at home. He followed all of his father's orders and directions. He was a lawkeeper. But as we learn in the parable, he did not keep that law or follow his father's commands because of real, true obedience. He did it for another reason. And in fact, he, he kind of betrays this at a certain point in the parable. He's so angry that the father has welcomed the younger son. And he comes and he, he puts his finger in the father's face. Well, that's my version of the story. I'm adding some details. He points at the father and he says, all these years I've slaved for you. And you never even gave me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. And what does he show us in that moment? He wasn't obeying the father because he loved the father or out of the freedom of being the father's child. He was obeying the father so that he could manipulate him. So that one day he could say, look at all this stuff I've done for you. You owe me. That ain't love. That's not authentic obedience. That's manipulation. And when we return to that old broken law, to be our motive for obedience. That's exactly what we're doing. Interestingly enough, though, the father responds to the older brother with just the same kind of grace that you see when he runs down the road to meet the younger son. He says to the older brother, well, you guys tell me, do you remember what he says? He says, son, all that I have is yours. Come and celebrate. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are in him, all that he has is yours. His inheritance belongs to you. And your motive for obedience now doesn't have to be fear or self-righteousness or pride. That can't get you very far, and it's never authentic obedience. Your motive now is living in the joy of knowing that all he has is yours. Nothing can take that away from you. Let that be the thing that propels you to follow God, honor him, and in the words of the text, bear fruit to his glory. Let me pray for us. Lord, as I prayed at the beginning, I'll pray again. I pray that the words of my mouth would have been pleasing in your sight and the meditations of all of our hearts would have done so also. We ask it and pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Guys, normally we'd ask you to stand at this point, but since we're going to be taking up the special offering for Ukraine relief right now, it might be easier if you sit down and to just stand after the bag passes. Just a reminder, this will be going half the mission to the world, half the Samaritan's Purse. And if you forgot to bring a check or, or something with you tonight, you can drop it off at the office tomorrow. Office is open 9 to 2. And uh, just make sure Monica knows that it's for the special offering in Ukraine. We'll do that now.
Let's pray for that offering. Lord, bless and multiply what was given. We plead, we plead with you and ask you in the name of Jesus, use this small gesture in ways much mightier through your strength and power than we could ever do in ourselves. Lord, have mercy on the country of Ukraine and the people fighting and struggling there. Please, hear our prayer. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Before I give the closing blessing, I want to mention that I'm actually tomorrow leaving to head back to Georgia for a few weeks. So I'll miss seeing you guys for a little while. But I'll be back Easter week, and so be around for all that's going on then. In the meantime, be kind to Pastor Brian. If I hear that you were mean to him, I'm going to be very upset. Especially you, Clayton. <laughs> Go with this blessing. I heard he's just going to show videos to all of them. He's just going to roll the TV and like the good sub teacher, it, if you mean to him, if he does that, then it's totally okay. It's called for at that point. So, Go with this blessing that God gives us. He says, now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. Go in his peace. Amen. <laughs>